0: Okay, today we're going to read from uh, Psalm ninety-five. Psalm ninety-five, which um, it's a psalm of David, even though it doesn't say that in the psalm, but the writer of Hebrews tells us um, it's a psalm of David. Uh, So yeah, if you have a Bible, open it up. It's always best to follow in your own Bible. It helps with um, familiarity uh, of uh, your own. Bible. Now, next week we are starting a new sermon series from 1 Samuel. So, uh, yeah, today is just the um, fill in, <laughs> the, the stepping stone to the new series. Um, but I'm, I'm sure God will, um, you know, bless us through this reading of his word. So let's hear from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof Though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for uh, the privilege that it is to gather together to sit under the authority of your word. Uh, We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we hear it today, that we wouldn't harden our hearts as we've just read, but rather that we would be receptive and that your spirit would open our eyes to see uh, the wonderful things here in your word and that your spirit would also empower us to put it into practice. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know, over the last two years, uh, something happened that to my mind was inconceivable until it actually happened, and that is we had weeks on end of not meeting together for worship. Uh, Just to give you some stats, 2020, we opened this place for uh, worship on 15 Sundays out of 52. And then we were very thankful when 2020 was behind us. Uh, 2021 came along and, you know, it wasn't that much better. Uh, 27 27 weeks out of 52, we uh, met together for um, worship. And, uh, you know, thankfully the lockdowns seem like they're a thing of the past, God willing. Uh, However... It's hard to go through something as disruptive as that and for it not to leave its mark on us in some way. And so today what I want to do is uh, to revisit this topic of uh, worship, uh, corporate worship, in fact, and examine God's word on this topic so that we can let God shape the way that we think about gathering together uh, and we can let God's word shape the way we engage Uh, this very vital part of the Christian life. And the best place to do do that is actually Psalm 95. Because Psalm 95 is a call to worship. And as a call to worship, it actually shows us what worship is. It tells us why we should worship. It tells us how to go about it. And uh, we're going to look at that today. So first, what worship is. So if this is a call to worship, uh, you'll notice it's a call to worship because it starts off with these words, come. Come, let us worship. And you'll notice in the psalm, there's actually two calls to worship. There's one here in verses 1 and 2, but there's also one in verse 6. And uh, together, they actually show us that what worship is. Worship is both adoration and surrender. So let me just unpack that. Let's have a look first at adoration in, in these two verses here. See, so notice how we're called to sing to the Lord. We're called to, uh, down in verse 2, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So in worship, what are we doing? We're praising God. We're singing to him. Uh, and, and so what are we doing? We're, we're saying to God, You are worth praising. So what is that? That's adoration. We're adoring God. And there's another psalm that that helps us to think about this a little bit more, where in Psalm 96, verse 8, it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Okay, so the glory, that's like the weightiness of God, the worth of God, where to ascribe that to him, to, to state how wonderful he is, how worthy he is. And uh, that's why we actually have this word um, worship. Because the word worship, it actually comes from an old English word which was pronounced worth ship. And that's what we're doing in worship. We're saying that God is worthy, that he's worth more than anything to me. Uh, and so as you do that, as you declare the worth of God, you do that in an outburst of adoration. So worship is adoration. Not only is it adoration, it's also surrender. So if we go down to the next call to worship in verse 6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. So there's three words there, worship, bow down, and kneel. And they all have the idea of getting down very low. Uh, In fact, that word worship in verse 6, it literally means to throw yourself flat on the ground. Now, this is not talking about a posture, like a physical posture. It's actually talking about a posture of the heart or an attitude of the heart. It's the attitude of unconditional surrender, Giving yourself over to something. That's what it means to worship. To give yourself over. And uh, this attitude of surrendering to the Lord, what are we doing? We're recognizing God's authority over us. In worship, we're recognizing God's right to rule our lives. We're recognizing his right to tell us what is true and false. His right to... To direct us. And so to worship means actually to submit your whole life to him because that's what he is worthy of. So worship, adoration and surrender. And if we are to think that out a little bit, that actually means that when it comes to worshipping God, it, it can't be something that we do that's then separated off from the rest of life. If it's both adoration and surrender... Then there's a sense in which all of life is worship to God. That, in one sense, the whole of life is one big act of worship, and we see that in the Bible. Uh, Romans twelve verse one talks about how we're to offer our bodies continually as a living sacrifice, and Paul says when we do that, that is our spiritual act of worship. So it's talking about all of life as worship. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, you've got Paul saying, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How do you do everything for the glory of God? You do everything in a way that reflects God's character and that's what brings him glory. And so there's a sense in which all of life is worship. All of life is about adoring God, submitting our lives to him. And yet this psalm is actually calling us to something very specific. See, verses 2 and 6 talk about coming to worship. You know, out. so here's all of life is worship, and yet there are times where God says, I want you to come and do this specific act of worship. I want you to come before me, come into my presence. Notice those words there in verses 2 and 6. And so God is saying that there has to be set times in our lives or set moments where we give him undivided attention, where we put aside everything else in order to worship the Lord. Uh, So that means a call to worship. You know, this is why we start each service with a call to worship. What is it? It's a call to stop working. It's a call to stop... Planning, stop rushing about. It's a call to put the phone away or put it on silent at least. Um, Forget about the social media feed. It's a call to stop thinking about um, your hobby. Stop thinking about the sports scores. Put all of that aside and focus on the Lord. Undivided attention. That's what a call to worship is all about. And see, this is actually something that you can do in different ways. You can do it on your own every day in your own quiet time. Uh, We call it that, you know, prayer and Bible reading. This is something that you can do every day as a family. Uh, I've always encouraged family worship. You know, get together at some point in the day where you put aside everything else and read the Bible together as a family, sing as a family, pray together. And of course, we can do that by gathering in the church, which I'm going to say more about in a moment. Uh, but, so what we see, though, is in the Bible, worship, it's all of life and specific actions. And the Bible teaches that both have to be a part of your life, otherwise you're not worshipping. You've got to have both. Uh, the Bible speaks about this a lot, actually, in both the Old and New Testament. Uh, when we preached through um, Isaiah a couple of years ago, uh, the first section of Isaiah, there are so many rebukes to God's people, and especially in chapter one, Isaiah really gets into them because they were attending worship. They they were faithful in their attendance and actually faithful in their practices. They did everything according to God's word. They kept the regulative principle. And, uh, and they were doing everything correctly. And yet God said to them, that is not worship. Why? Because their lives were corrupt. Because they were ungodly. Because the way they worked, the way they were at home, in their society, there was corruption everywhere. And so despite the fact that they ticked all the boxes in terms of doing the right practices, God said that's not worship because it was separated from all of life. And so there's a very uh, clear application there for us that if what we do in here has no impact on what we do out there, it's not worship, not according to God. Uh, Hosea Hosea and, and Micah say the same things. So you have to have all-of-life worship as well as coming together for specific worship. Uh, But it goes the other way as well. Um, You know, you can have someone who claims to be living for God in all of life and yet really sets aside devoted time to worship the Lord. And again, it completely undermines um, the all-of-life worship because God actually calls us to set aside time. That's what this psalm is doing. It's saying... Come, come and worship. Uh, God even gives us a day for worship, the Lord's Day. How good is that? (laughs) We don't have to work. God's given us a day where we can put aside everything else and uh, focus on worshiping him. And so if, if we don't obey his call, or if we let other things crowd it out, then you can claim that... I'm living for God, and yet if we don't stop and come and worship, then you're actually not worshipping him. Uh, Adoration means I I find God worth more than anything else. Surrender means I give myself first to the Lord. And that's what worship is, adoration and surrender. It's 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 all of life, but it's also set times as well. Now, the second thing we learn in this psalm is why we should worship. Why should you worship God? Uh, Or let's be a little bit more specific. Why should you come and worship God? Why should you give up uh, a day? Uh, Why should you give up set times in your week where you do give undivided attention to the Lord? Now, if you'd ask the average churchgoer that, uh, why should you worship you'll probably get a whole lot of different answers, really depending on the style of um, the worship service. So for some people, you know, they might say we should worship because it's exciting and fun, Uh, maybe even entertaining. Uh, For others, they'll say we should worship because it's inspiring, because it's edifying, because it's transforming. Uh, Lots of reasons. Worship will do those sort of things for you, but what you need to understand is that none of those reasons are the reason for worshipping God. Because all of those reasons are about what? They're about us. What it does for me, what I get out of it. That's not the reason to worship God. We worship God not because of us, but because of Him. It's all about God. And that's, that's what this psalm really gets across, because... Whenever it talks about the reason why we should worship, it's only ever about God. It's about who He is, what He has done. And you can see that in a couple of places in the psalm where where the sentence begins with for. So whenever a sentence begins with for, it means here's a reason for what it's just said. So let's have a look at the the reasons. The first one in verse 3 says we should worship God for... The Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Uh, so here we see we are to worship God because, uh, number one, he's a great God. And he's the king above all gods. And uh, you've got to realize that the original readers of this psalm were the Israelites. And they lived in a nation that was surrounded by other nations that all claimed to have their gods. And Israel was a very small nation. The nations around were huge. And so it might have looked like those other nations had really big and powerful gods um, and uh, the other nations, they thought of the gods like some lived in the hills, some you know, ruled over the sea, some provided rain for the crops, all of these ideas, and yet what do we see here? There's only one true God. There's only one who rules over all, over the, the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea. It's God rules over everything. Why? At the end of verse 6, because he is the maker. He is the maker of all. And so that means that all the other gods are just idols. They're not real. And we might think, um, you know, oh, those poor primitive people with all those false gods. It's no different today. You know, we, we have this, the same thing just with different guises. Uh, so, you know, the God of materialism, the God of status, achievement. These are things that people look to as, you know, that's what gives life. That's what gives happiness. That's what will make me whole. But they're all idols. There's only one true God, the great God, the king who rules over all, and he is our maker. He's the one who gives us our existence. And therefore, he is the one who deserves all praise. <clears throat> now, there's another reason down there in verse 7. We are to worship God for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. See so the image is now changed from king to shepherd. And the idea of the shepherd here is that God is the one who provides for us. And have a look at that last line: the sheep of his hand. Can you see that picture in your mind of a, uh, a sheep, and, and uh, the shepherd gets down on his hands and knees, really, to feed the sheep by hand. That's a picture of God's care for us. It's personal. He provides our every need, and therefore he is worthy of all praise. He's the provider. See, so he's our king, he's our shepherd. Now, there is another reason. It's not technically a reason in the sense that the sentence begins with for, but it's still a reason to worship God. And it's back in verse 1. Sorry, Ethan, you're going to get dizzy. Uh, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. Now, this is a very common phrase in the Psalms. It comes up a whole lot. You know, God is our rock. And normally it just means the idea of a, um, a refuge from trouble. Uh, You know, a rock is solid, Uh, a high rock is, you know, somewhere safe from enemies. But in light of the way the psalm ends, uh, this psalm has a very strong connection to Exodus 17. And so it's likely when, when it says that God is the rock of our salvation, it's actually referring to a particular rock, a rock that the Israelites received water from. So Sharif read it out before, Exodus 17. It's when the Israelites were in the desert, they ran out of water, and everywhere they looked was just desert. And so they have started to complain. They started to think, that's it, we're all doomed. Good one, God, you just brought us out here to kill us. And so they got very upset with God and uh, Moses. And uh, rather than saying, well, fine, I'll leave you guys alone, <laughs> God persisted with them. He said to Moses, I want you to bring them to a rock and I want you to strike the rock and when you strike the rock, water will flow out. And it did. And that there, it was a a picture of salvation because here were a people who were perishing, who had no hope and yet God brings water out of the most unlikely place, out of a rock. And uh, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that that rock was Christ. It was a picture of Christ, the one who is struck in our place from whom salvation flows to us. And so God is the rock of our salvation. And so what this psalm is doing is showing here's why we should worship. Here's why we should adore God and surrender our lives to him because of who he is, because he is the king, because he is the shepherd, he is our maker, he is the rock of our salvation. And you find that when you, when you approach worship like that, thinking about who God is, know, entering into the stories of the past where he, he saved his people, and you find that you're actually drawn into worshipping God not for what you get out of it, but simply for the joy of declaring how great God is. When that happens, then you're worshipping, but something else happens too. You're inspired, you're edified, you're transformed in a way that can only work if you make it all about God. If you come here because you want to declare how great God is in song, and and to listen to his word with with that that sense of surrender if you do that because of how great God is you will be transformed that's the way it works so there you go worship is adoration and surrender we do it because of who God is and because what he has done for us in the gospel but the third thing we learn from this psalm we learn how to worship how to do it in practice. And uh, this psalm, it doesn't give us an exhaustive list because it's not a textbook on worship. It's really, it's a song. It's a song calling us to worship. But it does highlight three things that we need to do. Three things that we should make part of worship. And the first one that we see in the psalm is that we must assemble We must get together. And you see that in the word that's repeated the most in the psalm. What's the word that's repeated the most? Did anyone see it? You can call it, did I hear us? You are correct. That's the main word. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before God. See, it's calling us to do what we call corporate worship. Corporate, everyone together. We are actually being called together with other believers in order to worship the Lord. Uh, this, this is not an optional extra in the Christian life. This is really at the heart of it because the Christian life has a certain rhythm to it, a weekly rhythm, in fact, and at the center of that rhythm is gathering together on the Lord's Day Uh, to worship the great God, the great King. Uh, And so that actually means that if corporate worship isn't a priority for you on on the Lord's Day, then there's something very, very unhealthy about your life. You should be very distressed if when you think of the list of the things that you could do on, on a Sunday that corporate worship sort of comes down somewhere a bit below the top. There's something very unhealthy about that because God actually calls us to worship and he set aside a day for it. And so this, this is what we are made for. Now, one of the things that the lockdown did was to make the Lord's Day all about us (laughs) as individuals. Uh, The the lockdowns made corporate worship into no longer corporate worship, but individual worship. And in some ways, I'll have to admit that um, when that first happened, it was kind of fun. Uh, There was a sense of freedom because we could all of a sudden worship on our time, <laughs> in our way, in our pajamas, with our coffees uh, around the TV. And, and that, that was actually fun for the first week or two. Then after that, it started to get pretty tiresome. It, it wasn't what it was meant to be. And, uh, you know, online church, it was a necessity at the time. But the enjoyment, I know for me, it quickly wore off because that's not what the Lord's Day is for. It's for coming together, assembling. And, uh, you know, there's something about gathering with other people to worship that cannot be achieved on your own. There's something about getting together that can't even be achieved just with your family or even just with a group of friends. It's only when the whole church gathers that then something happens, something that is remarkable And what is that something? The answer is actually in the New Testament in a few places. Uh, I'll tell you the references. You'll have to look them up later. It's 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, uh, Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22, and 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Actually, come and ask me later if you want to look them up because that's a lot of numbers. Um, But... There's three passages that describe the local church using a particular image. And it's the image of a building. And uh, the, the picture is, of the church is this building in which the Spirit of God dwells. Now, whatever you do, don't think that it's talking about a physical building like this. Okay? It's not talking about that. It's talking about the people. And uh, 1 Peter in particular actually goes so far as saying that believers the people who gather the people themselves are like individual bricks that when you come together it makes up this building in which God's spirit dwells and so when you're on your own what are you you're a brick when you're just with your family at home what are you a pile of bricks It's only when everyone gets together that then these bricks, these individual bricks, become this building where God's spirit dwells. And that's what's experienced when you gather as a church to worship the Lord. You can't get that in any other way, which is why we must assemble. It's why it's come, let us worship the Lord. Okay, here's another one. You must sing. Okay, to wor- how do you worship? You must sing. Go back to oh, we're there, verses 1, 2. Oh, let us come. Sorry, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs. Now, um, what you might not realize here is the thing that's especially emphasized when, when this psalm talks about singing Is the volume, the level of sound. Because the Hebrew word that's translated as joyful noise, it's a word that can be used in a whole variety of contexts. But the thing that it always has in common, whenever it's used, is a loud noise. So, to give you some examples, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9, it's used to describe a trumpet blast that warns a city of danger. Okay, very loud noise. Uh, it's the same word as used in Joshua 6 verse 20. For the victory shout when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. So that's a whole army all going, yeah. You know, it's like uh, you know when the, the siren sounds on the grand final and there's just that sudden, yeah. <laughs> that's what it would have been like. And so the psalm is actually calling us to sing to the Lord with that kind of enthusiasm. God is actually calling us to sing out loud, to project our voice. Raise your voice and sing. You could say. <clears throat> now I know that's a challenge for um, some of you here. Uh, I don't know who because I, you know, stand here looking out that, that way. So I'm not, you know, trying to single anyone out today. But. Um, It's it's likely that there are some here thinking um, singing is not my thing. You know, I can't do it. I don't want anyone to hear my voice because it sounds terrible and I don't want to inflict that kind of pain on the people around me. And I get that because that's exactly how I used to think um, because I am a hopeless singer. Uh, And so I used to think there's just no point trying. I'll just sing really quietly and that'll do. But then this psalm actually helps us because when it defines what singing is, it defines it by saying it's a joyful noise. And a joyful noise is something that anybody can do, whether they can sing well or not. Because all you have to do is make a noise. And for it to be a joyful noise, that's about the heart. That's about a love for God that causes you to You know, to sing and you, in fact, if you really love God and sing, you don't really think about what other people are thinking because where is your mind? It's on the Lord. So, a joyful noise. And uh, so, if you do that, if you sing out loud, then it really doesn't matter what you sound like in a way (laughs) Uh, because God calls you to sing. Because God calls us to sing, then we have to conclude it must be something that brings God pleasure. It must be something that he enjoys, even if the people around you don't enjoy the sound. See? God enjoys it, though. And... Sorry, that's... Water bottle keeps annoying me, Good. And here's the thing with that. If you do that, you sing out loud, you don't care about what you sound like, What ends up happening? You get better at it. (laughs) That's true in most cases. Uh, You become a better singer. And I'll just give you one example of that. Um, The last time I went to assembly, which is a big meeting of all the ministers and an elder from um, every church in Victoria, we meet once a year. So it's a a room, um, assembly hall in the city. There's over 200 men uh, in that building And the last time I went, I was sitting next to this minister that I hadn't seen for years. And this minister, who will remain nameless, because he was notorious for being a really bad singer, and everyone knew it, because he would sing at the top of his lungs and he sounded terrible. But no one would ever say anything against it, because you could just tell that it was always a joyful noise. You could tell he loved God, it just came out in the way he went about his singing. And so he, he, he sang, it was terrible. Uh, he couldn't hold a tune. And see, I hadn't seen him for ages. I went to assembly, sat next to him. And at assembly, we always sing a song at the start of every session, which is wonderful because you've got over 200 blokes belting out this um, song. And, and I've got to say, <laughs> this minister has improved. Uh, he, he was, he could actually sing in tune. I was just um, amazed. And uh, what that told me was, um, you know, persist, keep at it, just get into it and you'll likely improve. And even if you don't, it doesn't matter because what matters is a joyful noise. Okay, that's about the heart. It's not about perfect pitch. And that's what brings pleasure to God—that that that heart that wants to sing His praises is kind of oblivious to what what other people are thinking. That's the sort of singing that God is calling us to do. Now, uh, there's a third thing that we need to do in worship, and that is we need to listen to God's word. Uh, Worship is listening to God. Worship is responding to God, to his word. And we see that in the last part of the psalm. Let's get up um, the end of verse 7. Uh, you might have noticed in the reading that the first half of this psalm is really like it's exciting, it's big, it's loud. And then you get to the end of verse 7 and all of a sudden it just changes and everything goes quiet. And the tone changes, instead of being you know, loud and boisterous, now it's very somber, very serious. Uh, it actually becomes a warning. It ends with a warning. And it's actually God himself speaking here. So at first you've got this unnamed singer, well, unnamed worship leader calling everyone to worship. Then you get to the end and God himself steps in and has a word to the people. And here is the word, he says, today, uh, actually, not quite there, but today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness. See, here's where it seemed the voice changed. Where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So God kind of takes over. He's talking to the people. He's talking to us. And he's saying, remember that generation that came out of Egypt? that generation that God saved through the Exodus, and uh, they were on their way to the promised land. Remember those people? They didn't make it. They didn't get into the promised land. They all died in the desert. Why? Because they refused to listen to God. It says they hardened their hearts. And God says in verse 10, for 40 years... I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a very serious warning because here was a people who, who experienced the greatness of God. They saw his wondrous deeds. They saw the rock of salvation with their own eyes. And yet, they just would not listen. Now, they heard the word of God. And what did they do? They hardened their hearts and were stubborn. And as a result, they didn't enter the rest. In fact, that whole generation died. And it wasn't until the next generation grew up who they were then able to go into the promised land, the land of rest, under the leadership of Joshua. And so what this psalm is doing is saying to us that whenever we worship, that a core part of worship is actually hearing God's word. That might be new for some of you because we often, when we think about worship, we think of the singing time. But the listening to God's word is also a core part of worship. And yet there's a very serious warning here that when you listen to God's word, there's always a danger that you will go, whatever. You know, that sense of hardening the heart. And so this is warning us that whenever God's word is opened, whenever we listen, that we're to do so with a responsive heart, a soft heart, that we want to take what we have heard and put it into practice. And the reason it's presented in such a serious tone is because of what's at stake here. What is at stake? Your eternal salvation. That's what's at stake. And the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, actually chapter 3 and 4, the book of Hebrews makes a huge deal about this psalm. The way this psalm ends, there's nearly two chapters where the book of Hebrews unpacks the implications for Christians today. And it says to us, basically this, it says, think about it. Joshua brought the people into the promised land, the land of rest. Why then was a psalm written hundreds of years later that warns people about missing out on the rest? Didn't they already have it? And the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, the point is that land of rest was never the ultimate rest. It was only a shadow of something far more glorious, something far more permanent that was coming. What is that rest? It's salvation in Christ. And see, whenever the word is open, that that salvation is being offered. And the question is, are you listening? Are you taking hold of that? Are you responding? And the writer of Hebrews and Psalm 95 are saying that how you respond to God's word isn't is an indication of whether you have actually taken hold of Christ, whether you have this eternal rest in Him. It's how you respond. Do you put the Word into practice? Do you come here, go, yep, I've heard the Word of God, go out there and it makes no difference. If that's happening week after week, you're in big trouble. Because God says to the one who does not respond, the one who does not obey, they shall not enter my rest. And so this psalm, it's saying, when we gather to worship, we need to come with hearts that are ready. That's why it's always been a practice of believers all throughout the centuries to prepare for worship. To prepare and and the way that people go about that is to, to pray. Now that as a preparation, prepare my heart so that when I hear God's word, I respond. <clears throat> so there you go. God calls us to worship. He gives us a day for it. And worship means to adore Him, to submit our lives to Him to respond to his word in obedience because of all that he has done for us in Christ. And so may God give us here a love for him, a heart that loves him, a heart that wants to worship him and sing his praises. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are the great king above all gods, We praise you, Lord, because you are our maker. You are our shepherd. We praise you, Lord, for the way that you feed us, the way that you personally care for us. And Lord, we ask that uh, you would give us a heart that does indeed love you, a heart that is not ruled by idols, but rather by you, the true and living God. We pray, Father, that we would see the great privilege of being able to gather together, to declare your praises because that's what we were made for. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, transform us as we do that so that our lives would indeed be an act of worship. And we pray that you would also help us, Lord, to always attend to your word with that seriousness of realising that it is you speaking and that we would respond in obedience. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.